Regardless of your specialty, Prozac, Zoloft, and Paxil have become commonly used and familiar medications. What others should we know? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Stahl. Dr. Stahl is adjunct professor of psychiatry at the University of California in San Diego. He is an internationally recognized clinician, researcher, and teacher in psychopharmacology, and he's authored more than 350 articles and chapters. His latest book is the third edition of Stahl's Essential Psychopharmacology. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Stahl. It's a pleasure to be here. How do you currently explain how antidepressants work in the brain? We've all seen these little commercials put out by the pharma companies with the little blobs. I wonder if that's really how they work. Well, I think that we know where the antidepressants bind, but I'm not sure that that means we know how they work. Certainly, if the blobs are monoamines, that's probably the best bet we have to explain these drugs right now. The monoamines, particularly serotonin, is the most famous, and norepinephrine, its sister, but even dopamine, these three monoamines, sometimes called trimonoamines, are the targets of every known antidepressant. And in fact, it's only in research that we've ever identified a non-monoaminergic kind of mechanism that ever worked for depression. So the current antidepressants, some way or another, we think, boost monoamine neurotransmission. And that's how they're thought to work in the brain. Boost monoamine transmission. But what kind of time frame? Clearly, they don't work right away. That's a good question. Indeed, they do not work right away. It turns out that if you block a monoamine transporter that is an inactivator of a monoamine, it will cause a buildup of the monoamines, but not a very big one, even though it's a very sudden one. In fact, it probably makes them build up sufficiently to cause a side effect, but not a therapeutic effect. So what's happening? Well, if you sustain the buildup of the monoamines, the neuron will react by downregulating certain receptors. Those receptors are mostly, if you will, brakes. They turn off the release of monoamines. So if you downregulate them or you cut the brake cable, boom, you get a big amount of monoamines being released. So what we think had happened is that the antidepressants suddenly block transporters, which then causes the monoamines to indirectly decrease, downregulate the brakes of the neuron, which then seven to... 70 days later, something like that, will cause a much more profound increase of the monoamines. So it's thought that that increase of the monoamines with a delay is what's necessary in order to exert an antidepressant effect. Besides the basic SSRIs, as I mentioned, um, sertraline, fluoxetine, paroxetine, what other antidepressants are important for our listeners to know? Well, there certainly are the SNRIs, or serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, also called dual-action drugs. And, of course, there's three, almost four of them. The three that are out there are Efexor, Venlafaxine is the branded name, an unbranded name. Then there's a duloxetine, Cymbalta. But you also have the new one, Pristique, which is Desvenlafaxine, and one that's imminent to be approved at the FDA, but not for depression, but perhaps for fibromyalgia, called milnasopran. Those are SNRIs. You also have Wellbutrin, which is kind of in a class by itself, also called bupropion, and it's a dopamine and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, or NDRI, if you will. 
course, you got old-fashioned trazodone, you got the tricyclics, you got the old MAO inhibitors. I'll put a little plug in here. If the listeners are psychopharmacologists of any sophistication, it's uh, one of the secret weapons in the armamentarium for treatment resistance, but almost nobody prescribes them anymore. So there are the major classes. Mirtazapine is an interesting drug, Remeron. It's kind of in a class by itself. It has alpha-2 antagonist properties, but it's not a reuptake blocker. Now, you mentioned the newest one on the market is desvenlafaxine or Pristique. Uh, What do we need to know about that? That's probably the one people are least familiar with. Well, it is the active metabolite of one that the listeners probably do know very well, venlafaxine. It turns out that Efexor or venlafaxine is actually metabolized into desvenlafaxine, just sort of like its name sounds like. The main difference is that when you take desvenlafaxine itself, you're not dependent on the conversion of the parent compound into it, and that makes the net action more noradrenergic. In other words, venlafaxine is a little less noradrenergic at the N of the SNRI than is desvenlafaxine. So it's a little more noradrenergic, it's a little more predictable, it has perhaps fewer drug interactions, but it is very similar to venlafaxine. So maybe a bit more like Cymbalta than Effexor? Is that one way to think about it? Well, yes. In terms of its pharmacology, both Cymbalta and Pristique are more noradrenergic. The so-called claim to fame of Pristique, which will require marketing for a while to see if it's true, is that it seems to be able to be used without much titration, at least for the first-line treatment of the easier patients. Mostly Cymbalta and Effexor require some titration. Whether that will be true or whether it will be an advantage is really what we'll have to find out as the drug is used in the early months. Now, if you're just joining our discussion, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Stahl. We are discussing the latest in antidepressant treatment. Dr. Stahl, in your book, you talk about the TMMs. That was a new one for me. What are they? Well, it's a trimonoamine modulator, TMM. And what do I mean by that? Who are the trimonoamines? They're serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. And what is a modulator? It's something that may act either indirectly on monoamines or work if you will, Mobetta in the presence of an antidepressant that directly changes monoamines. What do I mean by that? It's a number of hormones like estrogen, like thyroid. These agents in and of themselves possibly have a little bit of antidepressant effect. That's controversial and certainly not established. But certainly in combination with antidepressants can boost or modulate the trimonoamines that the antidepressant is already boosting or modulating on its own and give you a further efficacy boost to the antidepressant action. Another one is lithium. By itself, at least in unipolar depression, is not that good of an antidepressant but can boost regular antidepressants and modulate monoamines while it's doing that. And the new kid on the block is this L-methylfolate, which is the centrally active form of the vitamin folate, its sister products would be S-adenosyl methionine or SAMe and other natural products that could fall in this category include things as various as testosterone, vitamin D, and omega-3 fatty acids. So these things are not as well investigated. None of them are approved as a monotherapy, but by various mechanisms, which we could discuss, but they all do have a way of boosting monoamines and helping 
antidepressants boost them, if you will, more better. Certainly these quote-unquote natural treatments have a huge appeal with our patients. I know for me, Sammy, you know, had some great press, what, 10 years or so ago. We tried it, and I can't say I ever noticed anything from Sammy. But now L-methylfolate and omega-3 fatty acids are sort of the rage. Is there any downside to at least trying them? I don't think so. Some people are cynical and say that the mechanism of action of these agents is that they bind to money receptors. <laughs> they may do that. But actually, the one that I'm kind of interested in, intrigued with right now is L-methylfolate. It turns out that L-methylfolate is a precursor for a cofactor that makes monoamine synthesis called biopterin. And by doing that, it can make more serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. If you don't have folate, you can become depressed, and people who are folate deficient tend to have high levels of homocysteine, and if you give L-methylfolate, the homocysteine levels will come down, and particularly if you haven't responded to an antidepressant, those are excellent candidates to give L-methylfolate for. The other thing that's happened is that there are different genes for the enzyme that converts the folate that you eat into L-methylfolate in your body, and if you have a low level of that enzyme, you become functionally L-methylfolate deficient in your brain. Also, drugs can interfere with that, like anticonvulsants, Depakote uh, can interfere with absorption of folate, and actually Lamictal interferes with the formation of L-methylfolate. So there may be mysterious ways to identify the people who could respond to this. It would be very nice to know who they are, but empirically, I have seen responders to this in my practice, but it's been in the minority and it's been unpredictable. But it can be very sudden and very profound, and I was a little bit skeptical about it till I actually saw a couple of cases. I don't think we know who to give what to, though. How do you dose L-methylfolate? Well, it's available, I think, only in one commercial form called Deplin, and it comes in a standard 7.5 milligrams just so you know where that is, the folate you take in from your diet might be a tenth or two-tenths of a milligram. That's also the amount that's in multivitamins. A pregnant woman would take one milligram of folate. L-methylfolate is more potent. So actually, seven and a half milligrams of L-methylfolate is more comparable to like 52 milligrams of folate itself. So it's a real blast of it, and it's a pharmacological dose. You can't get it from a food store. It's actually a prescription you have to get it from. Now, real quick, let's look in your stall crystal ball. What do we have to look forward to in antidepressant treatment? Well, there's a couple of new monoamine mechanisms, and there's a couple of new, and for the first time, non-monoamine mechanisms. I think the thing that will happen even before them is that we may very well have a treatment that is approved for both unipolar and bipolar depression. Quetiapine is heading in that direction even drugs like aripiprazole. They could be expensive, but since antidepressants in a bipolar patient can make you manic, it'd be sure nice to have something that worked for both. I think we'll see that. Such approvals are already pending. But in addition to that, in terms of new molecules, there is a beta-3 agonist called amibigron, which is out there that has preliminary signs of efficacy. There's a D3 partial agonist uh, that could be used called cariprazine. There's even an NK2, a neurokinin-2 antagonist, if you care. It's a sister, but not the same as a substance P, which is NK1, which was tried with great aplomb and then crashed and didn't work. It's called seregiton. It's actually been showing preliminary signs of efficacy in depressed patients. And finally, there's the CRF, corticotrophin-releasing factor, one receptor antagonists. For the listeners who care, I actually have an article in CNS Spectrums this month on that. And its sister would it be a vasopressin-1b antagonist. Vasopressin-1b receptors also regulate the HPA axis. So 
These are new possibilities for antidepressants that don't even work by monoamines for the first time. Thanks so much for sharing all this new information with us today. My pleasure. We've been speaking with Dr. Stephen Stahl about what's new in antidepressants. His latest book is the third edition of Stahl's Essential Psychopharmacology. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at reachmd.com. If you register with the promo code RADIO, you'll receive six months of free streaming for your home or your office. If you have comments or suggestions, give us a call at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening. G'day, I'm Dr. Trevor Duke from the Centre for International Child Health in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to the first national radio channel created specifically for medical professionals, ReachMD-XM-160.